0: Dartmoor, England's last wilderness. Once called a wild and wondrous region, the tors and mires of Dartmoor are still haunted by the fables and legends of this mysterious place. This is Myth and moor. Well ladies and gentlemen welcome to the very first episode of Myth and Moor and first thing I'd like to do is introduce uh, my my co-host my partner on this podcast which is my very own dad Mr David Hawkins. Hello, how you doing, big guy? Yep. You'll, you'll notice me call you big guy at some points during this podcast because uh, that is my <laughs> yeah, that is my pet name, and I won't be able to help myself but from C No, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I don't know how that came
1: about because I'm not that big a guy, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a name that I've I've grown to
0: love over the years. So the first question is why? What is this podcast? What are we doing? What is it all about? And why are we sitting here about to embark upon this journey of doing a podcast about? the supernatural things of dartmoor i think you've got
1: to uh, realize that if you're a young lad growing up in the city of plymouth in in devon in which is as you know is one of the southwest of england's two maritime counties yeah you're always aware of that looming mass of grey hills behind you and in fact i remember as a young lad walking down uh, through the streets of plymouth and seeing a road called Moorview view yeah. and thinking hmm
0: what is this moor it's one of the few wild places left left in the country isn't it truly wild places but it also happens to be quite close to those urban areas so lots of people will be aware of it but, but what did our, what did grandma used to say it was it was rotten old moor so it was the there. rotten old moors well of course that yeah. was that was a bit later when i used
1: to uh, go out walking on dartmoor yeah just about every weekend and of course It nearly always rains. That's one of the main characteristics of of the area, (laughs) that you get a lot of rain. And Mum's wonderful phrase was, you boys come back leaking wet from those rotten old moors. (laughs) Why do you do it? Because they exercise this extraordinary call on a lot of people who just find that there's something magical about walking over those desolate hillsides. And I use the word desolate maybe incorrectly because when you get to know about the Moors, you realise that almost every square inch has got a history to it. And there's, if you take the trouble to read about it, as I did with a large collection of books that I've built up over more than 60 years, you realise that there's hardly a vestige of Dartmoor that hasn't
0: got a real history and some legends attached to it. Now, your interest of, of Dartmoor uh extended to you actually writing a book back in the eighties about a very specific topic. Yes, it did. Well, you
1: say written in the eighties. I actually started that back in the sixties when I was still at school at my it wonderful just took, It
0: just took twenty years to complete.
1: <laughs> yeah, well that's right. Um because I had other stuff to do as well. Yeah. But uh my old school, Devonport High, for which I still have very fond memories, um, after we'd taken our A levels, we basically had very little to do and dear old alma whitfeld our english master said oh you boys really ought to be doing something to occupy your time (laughs) and because of my interest in dartmoor i'd been walking on the moors just about every weekend as i've said and one thing you do notice is that dartmoor of course it's it has been called the land of streams and let's Mm. face it there's a lot of water up there and this water was exploited not only for drinking purposes, but to operate mines and other mills. And watercourses known as leets were developed right back from the middle of the 17th century and possibly even earlier to supply water to these various places. It had always fascinated me, so I said to my English master, I'll write a history of Plymouth water supply via its leets. Good idea, he said. So off I went to Plymouth public library's local history department where strangely enough the uh the head librarian was a, a friend of of my father's dear old rex charlesworth who is uh he's still around although not in the library service now at the age of 98 <laughs> and he was able to help me research the early stages of writing the book
0: so it's clear that uh you have uh, a long-standing interest in Dartmoor from a factual point of view. And uh, and I think what, what brings us together for this podcast is uh, your love of Dartmoor. And obviously, I've been very much aware of it ever since I was a boy as well, by extension. And we've spent many times walking up on the moors ourselves. Yes, we have. But also our joint interest in all things supernatural things weird and spiritual and strange and because Dartmoor being such a remote place there tends to be a sort of disproportionate number of those stories related to the
1: moors i think that's right um we used to go out from plymouth to a little moor's side village called mevie and if you walked from you could go out on the bus from plymouth bus station bretonside bus station to mevie and then you could walk from there to the village of Sheepstore, which was right on the southwestern slopes of the moor. As soon as you got there, you began to realize that there were strange mythical references. For example, over the porch of Sheepstore Parish Church is this wonderful old death's head, which we later realized was actually a green man. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. got the oak leaves and the tendrils coming out of its nostrils yeah. and its mouth. And people would say, oh, if you climb up to the top of Sheepstore, don't forget to look for the Pixies Cave. <laughs> mm, Pixies Cave, what's that all about? Oh, well, it goes back to the days of the Elford family. Hmm. Elford's. Now, there's a place nearby called Yelverton. Yes, that's right. That used to be Elford Town. And you suddenly realize yeah. you've only got to be on the moors for a little while to realise this massive um tapestry of connected facts and
0: Fables, I might have. Yeah. So over the over the years, you've uh, collected uh, a huge selection of Dartmoor related books. And when I came up with this idea, uh, I thought you will already have in your possession probably all of the literature. Uh, that we'll need to dig into some of these some of these old stories so when when we spoke about it we started looking at what kind of things were happening on the moor and we came up with a huge list of of weird and wonderful topics so some of the things that we'll be talking about on the show uh strange things related to water bottomless pools and that kind of thing many many tales about beasts and all kinds of cryptozoological creatures that are right. on the moor uh your traditional folk tales of devils and demons witches and, and warlocks uh and of course druidic activity and rituals including uh the stone circles that are scattered all across darm were in some incredibly remote places that's right And of course a lot of those back in the
1: early days of antiquarianism in the early 19th century they were all regarded as having some kind of druidic yeah. ritual um attributes um <laughs> there's an interesting example there was a wonderful lady called mrs bray um, who was the wife of the vicar of tavistock and she wrote a series of letters to the poet robert southey oh, yeah, yeah. in which she described her experiences in walking on the moors and i'm sure we'll deal with this in in later episodes but you'll find if you walk up to the top of many of the tours, you will find shallow basins which have become eroded in, in the granite. Um, we know them now as as rock basins, that they're the result of weathering, yeah. ice, snow, small pebbles slowly wearing them away. Sure. But Mrs. Bray was convinced, as as were a lot of later writers, that these were pools that had been cut by the Druids for various ritual purposes. Um, I think the phrase they used was "lucustration."
0: <laughs> Very um, nice. And why not? And I think that's one thing that that we want to that we want to bring to the. Point. I'm not ruling anything out as we go into this, as no. we delve back into some of these stories. Absolutely, I'm going to keep an open mind to some of these. I, th- I think one of the stories that that kind of triggered me to talk to you about doing this this podcast was the one that that you used to tell us uh, back when we were kids about the roads up on the top of Dartmoor because there are a few roads that run right over the top of the moors and and a huge number of accidents happen at this very wild very remote you can easily slip off the edge of the road and crash your car but the story goes that it wasn't always driver error that caused these as deep in the middle of the night, two enormous hairy hands would reach out onto the road and wrestle the cars <laughs> off onto the moor. And that story always stayed with me because it's such a vigil image of these two huge hands coming in. And we ourselves have driven along that road to
1: Postbridge many, many times. Yeah. There's um, a pine forest on one side and on the left, the moors rise up towards, I think there's a little um, farmstead called Archerton. And... One of the things I'm digressing here slightly, but that does, I think that's okay. (laughs) Um, I remember reading some of the early archaeological works, and there was a Kistvane, which is a Bronze Age burial chamber, um, in what was always described as Archerton Tennis Ground. And I used to think, who on earth would want to play tennis up on that? uh, I don't think that would be possible. (laughs) well particularly not with a kiss vein right in the middle no, of the exactly. court yeah, you know that would make uh, make your serves and your returns pretty difficult <laughs> yeah. um, and you'd lose a lot of balls in the kiss vein as well mm-hmm. but uh, i think on the hairy hounds point the first example of that was not a car it was actually a motorcyclist um riding along and of course you only need one hairy hand just to pull yeah. on the handlebars and oh, off you go um and I, as you say, I think we'll probably look at that in a lot more detail later on. Absolutely. But, but that's uh, that—that's a myth, maybe
0: more than a myth, that still persists to to this day. So I think we will be covering all those kind of topics and we'll touch on some of the more famous things as well. Obviously, The Hound of the Basketball is probably being the most famous of the uh, supernatural tales uh, from Dartmoor. Well, yeah, that's a spin-off from deeper tales that go
1: well... Um, beyond the um, experience of conan doyle who of course oh, yeah. wrote hand of the baskervilles but we know that he did stay on the moors and that uh, he picked up a lot of legends from from the earlier times there yeah
0: so that is how the that's the format the show is going to take each week or each uh, each episode uh, i'll ask you to tell me about one of these topics and uh, and you can enlighten me and all of our listeners about some of these crazy tales and we'll sort of We'll, we'll dig in and around them and, and see what we can find out about all of the supernatural weirdness up on those moors. That sounds absolutely
1: great. And I thought if it's okay with you, what we might start with this time, because yeah. I think I mentioned that uh, Devon is, is one of the southwest of England's maritime counties. We are actually unique in Devon in having two coastlines yeah. separated from one another. Cornwall, of course, is a peninsula that sticks out into the sea. Devon has a very well-defined north coast and a south coast. And it's this maritime environment which really um, gave rise to people who have later become known as the sea dogs of Devon. Right. And you probably most people know of Sir Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, and yeah. their extended family members, Humphrey Gilbert, people like that. Okay, so let's embark on episode one,
0: Squires and Sea Dogs. Right, well, I thought we'd start with dear old Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, He of the going off and getting potatoes fame. He got potatoes. He got tobacco. Right.
1: And some say that it was he who introduced the English language to the continent of North America. And what's his connection then to Dartmoor? How is he... Well, his family um, lived on Dartmoor. They had a a large country home called Fardell Hall. Right. Uh, This is on the the southern slopes of Dartmoor, down towards um, what we now call the South Hams, which is the uh, agricultural land lower down from those slopes. Um, And, of course... At one time, he was very much the favourite of Queen Elizabeth I. I think most people know about the story of the cloak and the puddle. Uh-huh, yes, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> the gallant Sir Walter laid his cloak in
0: the puddle, so... Um, he was really just trying to get funding for his mad av- adventures, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> he
1: and Drake were funded by the Crown, basically to go out and expand English influence on the high seas. Yeah. Obviously, the Spanish were rampaging about plundering the Americas. Yes. And it was really their job to go out and… Plunder (laughs) back. Plunder back. (laughs) Intercept those Spanish galleons as as hard as they could, come back and give Gloriana, the queen, as much loot as they could lay their hands on.
0: But Darwar itself is not on the coast. So how do our… How do these guys connect uh, up to Dartmoor and what are some of the supernatural stories? Behind?
1: Well, there's there's really only one supernatural story relating to um, Sir Walter Raleigh, but it's always interested me because of the little rhyming couplet that goes with it. Um, the Raleigh family were based at a place called Fardell Hall, yeah. which is near Cornwood, village on the edge of Dartmoor. And rumour has it that at a time when Sir Walter had actually fallen out of favour with the court. He was escaping from his family home at Fardell Hall um, with his family treasure. And he's reputed to have buried this in a field not far from Fardell. Oh. And the spot is was marked by a curiously inscribed stone which had not only... Um, Ogham markings on it, but a Latin inscription as well. What does it say? Well, who knows? The stone itself. (laughs) I thought you were going to reveal it then. Well, yes, I am. (laughs) You've got to wait. Um, The big reveal will come. Uh, Um, The stone itself has disappeared. Possibly it's been built into a gatepost or something. But it is believed in translation to say Between this stone and Fardell Hall lies more money. Than the devil can
0: haul, so ah, so it here, wasn't actually on the spot where it was buried. No, so nobody actually knows actually the knows specific where it spot. is. However, there is apparently
1: a field where crops won't grow. Oh. Dogs will howl when they cross the spot, and it's believed that here we come into another of Dartmoor's mythical creatures that pixies hmm. protect this treasure um never been found although i suppose these days you'd get metal detectorists wandering yeah. about looking for it it's never ever been found and i first read that phrase quite a young chap in one of the very earliest books that i bought about dartmoor and uh, it's always stuck in my mind but interestingly there's another um curious tale of the raleigh family which i've only actually come across quite recently um the raleigh's had another home um in devon a place called Withercombe raleigh named after them so it gives you an idea of how important they were in the area and this was held directly from the crown and He, they, the Raleigh family didn't have to pay, I'm just laughing at this, it's so mad The Raleigh family didn't have to pay rent But once a year, they had to find, the um, owner of the property Had to find the king two good arrows stuck in an oaten cake <laughs> whenever, whenever he hunted on Dartmoor What does that and, mean? Well, I don't know I mean, I've spent a lot of time on Dartmoor <laughs> And apart from dropping my energy bar on the ground, I've never actually found any oaten cakes. Certainly not with two good arrows stuck in them.
0: Was was that just really bad (laughs) hunting? Was that the sort of last resort, if they couldn't catch a deer or whatever? They just shoot a couple of arrows into an oaten cake. History doesn't tell us.
1: All we know, the king wanted, come on, Raleigh, get out on those moors. Find that oat and cake with two good arrows stuck in. It. If he wasn't,
0: he he was sort of he was constantly being asked to go and get edible stuff, wasn't he? If it's not potatoes, it's oat and cakes. <laughs> tobacco, yeah, can <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose you can <laughs> yeah, chew, chew tobacco, it. yeah. yeah. That you know,
1: um, but some of these very interesting and and really obscure tales, you you need to dig into some of the more remote, um. Dartmoor Publications. I find a very, very good source of this stuff is the um, the folklore reports of the transactions of the Devonshire okay. Association. I'm just looking at a note here that I made. <coughs> um, that was actually in the uh, 1904 edition of the transactions. <laughs> right. um, you n- really need to scour back through these things to find some of these uh, very, very unusual um, tales. So what do we um,
0: think was in Raleigh's Hall then? What do we think was buried there money from his ill gotten monies from some of his uh, some of his trips away we suspect it was
1: because he'd just got back from one of his expeditions, so he'd probably delivered his um tribute to the queen, yeah, and this was probably what was left over took yeah. it back to his family home and then suddenly uh oh they were out looking for him he'd upset the queen he'd done something he shouldn't
0: have done yeah and uh, quick better bury the loot in this field so have there been any stories of treasure hunters or other people up on dartmoor because it's the kind of place where you could obviously spend a lot of time searching around for stuff and nobody's going to bother you so i'd be surprised if people haven't been searching for them well
1: i don't know i haven't come across many references to that um we know that dartmoor of course is very very rich in Its mineral resources, tin and copper, have been mined on Dartmoor since the Middle Ages, if not before. And as we also know, the surface of the moor is very, very poor agricultural ground. And there's that wonderful phrase by um, one of Devon's early historians, Tristram (laughs) Risden, You've probably heard of Risdon. (laughs) Um, He wrote that Dartmoor was richer in the bowels than on the face thereof, Mm -hmm. Um, indicating that, you know, you can dig stuff up from the ground and it's uh, valuable tin and copper Um, on the top, try and plant stuff. Nothing. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this this Walter Raleigh story is one of the very few that I've come across um, of
0: actual buried treasure. Mm -hmm. There you go. So who else have we got then from the... Uh, you mentioned squires. Well, yes.
1: There's always a good tale to be told about an evil squire, isn't there? <laughs> and if you read some of the works of Baring Gould, who was a great collector of folk stories, you find many of these. Most of them, though, are off the moors. They're in the remote parts of, of Devon, um, for example, you can think of uh, Jack Russell, the... Uh,
0: the English keeper,
1: Not the English no, wicket wicketkeeper. Um, in fact, the vicar of Swinbridge, <laughs> um, who was a pretty cruel sort of guy, did a lot of hunting and actually bred the dog, which to this day is called the Jack Russell Terrier. Oh, there you go. Um, but we're not going to talk about him today. What we're going to talk about is a guy called Richard Cabell. OK. And he lived at uh, a place called Brook Manor on the uh, eastern slopes of Dartmoor, not far from Buckfastley. Oh, uh, yeah. He was a real sort of rough diamond squire. His tenants went in absolute fear of him. He terrorised his wife, treated her very, very badly. And it is said that he kept a village maiden imprisoned in his other property at Horson Manor.
0: He sounds like a a dastardly fellow.
1: He was a pretty terrible fellow. He was known as a monstrously evil man. Mm. Um, And so was his death. But it comes down to us in three different forms. Some say that a pack of spectral hounds surrounded his house howling and baying as they dragged him off to hell. Ooh. Another version, possibly more plausible, <laughs> that his own hounds started chasing him when he was out hunting one day on Dartmoor, and he dropped dead of exhaustion, couldn't escape
0: the howling oh, beasts. I should think that would be quite terrifying, being chased over the moors. I mean, it's, it's bad enough... Just being up there on your own, let alone if you were... Well, that's
1: right. But one assumes if he was hunting, he was on a horse. Okay, yeah. But, of course, horses on that rough ground can very easily stumble, throw their rider, and suddenly the hounds are behind me. Run, Cabell. Yeah, no good. Couldn't couldn't outrun the hounds. Um, The final version is a little bit more domestic and possibly has a little more of a ring of truth to it. Cabell, rather um, unfairly, uh, apparently accused his wife of adultery. Right. Never mind the maiden, he'd kept himself yep. a <laughs> manor house. Never mind <laughs> yeah, all never that. mind that. Um, He beat her. He chased her onto the moor. He stabbed her, at which point her pet dog... There's a lot of dogs in yes, these there's stories. Lot, oh, it's, yes, it's a very, very dog-related uh, thing, that Yeah. Um, her pet dog flew at him and ripped out his throat. Oh, so both wife and husband died in that terrible scene and the pitiful howls of man, woman and dog can still be heard on the moors. Now, there's only one flaw to that story. Yeah, go on. His wife apparently outlived him by 14 years. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> so, that one less likely, I so, guess. So, so that just does indicate... Well, it could have been, it could have been the maiden... She could have escaped and chased him out. I like that story because then she, maybe she dies, but she at least gets some revenge on him. Well, that's true. Although, again, as with most of
1: these tales, history does not reveal the truth. No. But it was a real issue for the local people and so strong were their fears that when he finally died in 1677, he was buried in a massively strong tomb a hugely weighted stone was placed over his coffin. Yeah. They built a square chamber around the whole thing, grilled windows, because they were concerned that ghosts and vampires would come and remove his body. Wow. So that he would then almost um, like a, a zombie yeah. or a vampire haunt the area. And amazingly, this incredible construction is still there today is it yeah if you go to buckfastly parish church which is interesting because it's right on the top of a hill and of course maybe in later episodes we'll talk about the significance of churches being built on the tops of hills okay and how the builders always had trouble with the devil Moving the stones from mm. one place to another. Interesting. Um, usually they wanted to build at the bottom of the hill. The devil kept moving the stones. Ah. The oh, God, not <laughs> again. Um, and so they gave up. They relented in the end yeah, and built okay. the place at the top. But Buckfastlee Parish Church mysteriously burnt down not that long ago. Mm. So now it's just the hollow shell. But beside it is this massive tomb with its grilled windows its
0: huge heavy coffin stone on the top it shows how terrified people can be of somebody that even in their death they're still so afraid they have to entomb him in some Mm. impenetrable uh, coffin it's it's, it's terrifying he must have been a very scary character well
1: he was and I suppose you've got to ask the question did these precautions actually work? yeah Uh, no they didn't (laughs) <laughs> so they were beset by vampires Apparently Squire Cabell still leads his spectral pack oh. Across the moors On those dark and windy nights
0: I can imagine Buckfast Lee Church then Is a pretty scary place now as it's, in, uh, it's, it's, a,
1: it's a scary place to be Although of course it looks down onto the uh, very famous Abbey of Buckfast Of course, yeah And I don't know we might even talk about that in some future episode, yeah. because uh, that was allegedly built by the monks of Buckfast with their own hands, mm. um, and it's now a wonderful
0: place to visit. Um, yeah, well, that's very weird about about old Cabell. Is uh, I think it's one of the it's one of those things that once that story starts and back then i think probably people that were that evil the locals needed to have some excuse right they needed to have some reason for his malevolence yeah and i think also they like to have a focus yeah
1: i think we you know you you've got to remember that uh, probably being a, a peasant on dartmoor in the 17th century wasn't a lot of fun (laughs) no i can imagine and they these people i mean the squires themselves were really just ordinary west countrymen dartmoor farmers they weren't the great and the good no sure but they did have an inordinate amount of power over the people who worked for them yeah um and so that's perhaps why these stories grew up because they it was the only
0: focus. Not much else happened. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, there you have it. So was he the mo- he was he one of the most evil young squires that we're aware of?
1: Yes, he was. I think a bit later on we'll talk about another one. Um, yeah. who was slightly more benign actually, but I know you're itching to uh to get on to one of Devon's most famous sons, Sir Francis Drake. Uh yes. He of the leet. fame. Yes. The leet
0: now. Some of our listeners may not really know what a leet is. You're we, not you're not allowed to uh, you're not allowed to steamroll this podcast and turn it into a sort of uh, elite loving. I'm afraid.
1: No, not at all. Um, but leet, of course, the word leet does come from the Anglo-Saxon geledan which means to lead. So if I'm leading it this way, it's because I'm interested in leets. <laughs> but let's not go down that route. Um, Sir Francis Drake friend of sir walter raleigh yeah um he was actually born on dartmoor at a place called crowndale sure. which is not far from tavistock that wonderful little greeny gray town on yeah. the southwest slopes of dartmoor born in 1539 um and of course you will know what's he most famous for the devonport leet wrong oh sorry to correct you on that
0: he is most known for beating the Spanish Armada. <laughs> well, yeah, I was trying to be, I was trying to be uh, charitable to you, big guy, after your, uh, your efforts with your famous book, Water from the Moor. Yeah, well, maybe
1: again we'll come back to Water from the Moor. Um, n- now no longer available from
0: all good book books. <laughs> but, uh, yes, of course, his Armada. Yeah, his, his, his slightly, uh, slightly bigger achievement.
1: Absolutely um 1588 was the date of the uh, spanish armada they sailed up the english channel in uh formidable spanish galleons of yeah. course they were spanish so you'd, you'd expect, <laughs> you'd expect it. It. Um, one of the famous myths of course is that francis drake was playing bowls on plymouth hoe which is that wonderful <laughs> area that overlooks plymouth sound said to be one of the finest sea views in europe um and one of the ways that uh in, in maritime warfare at that time, of course, was to set fire to an old ship that you didn't want anymore, right. steer it towards your enemy's fleet, okay. and the fire would catch from okay. ship to yeah, ship, yeah, yeah. and the gunpowder in the holes would explode, and, you know, yeah. job done. S- simple but effective. Did Drake need to do that? No, he didn't. Apparently, it just so happened, so the story goes, that he was whittling
0: a piece of wood... <laughs> Whilst I thought he was playing bowls, or he was sort of he was whittling between each, each when it ball. wasn't his turn. <laughs> yeah, okay. When, I think you have ends
1: in bowls. Yeah, so when okay. it wasn't his end, he was whittling. He was just whittling a bit of wood. Somebody came up. Excuse me, Sir Francis. A Spanish fleets coming up the channel. Yep. just come round Ramehead. Oh, I don't. He threw the chips of wood from his whittling into the sea. Each one, as it hit the water miraculously turned into a fire ship.
0: Wow.
1: Now, that's pretty now that's amazing, is That's a handy little trick yeah. to have up your sleeve, Absolutely. isn't it?
0: Absolutely. But it we, also... We could have done with him in all of those other wars. You could have just stood there just whittling. Just whittling, exactly, yeah. you know. I would have done a fantastic job.
1: Yep, certainly. But uh, <laughs> apparently, it wasn't a military technique that was adopted um, <laughs> no. in in later years. Uh, no. um, we just don't know why. M- many other um,
0: admirals attempted the uh, the whittling technique. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are
1: also some very very strange stories about Francis Drake, and who goodness knows who knows if they're true. There's there's one occasion where he threw a boy overboard because he thought the boy was cleverer than he was. <laughs>
0: That seems like a harsh punishment.
1: But again, you know, I think we've, we've got to remember he might have been Sir Francis Drake, but he was just an old Dartmoor boy who who yeah. made good, really.
0: Um, and- that seems... I can just imagine that situation where he just... Des- right, well, he's out, you know, get rid of this man. <laughs> That's very harsh. But there's a, there's another wonderful story, and it, it
1: cannot possibly be true. It said that he fired a cannonball through the earth to prevent his <laughs> wife committing bigamy. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I don't know what leads to the other, no, really. I don't.
1: There's no obvious kind of causal link between those two things. Fired um, a
0: cannonball through
1: the earth. I yeah, mean, I mean, it was one heck of a cannonball. Yeah. You know, wow. that is
0: quite amazing. I, I can only assume that his wife was sort of right at the point of, of about to be uh, engaging in bigamy on the other side so of th- the earth. In the Antipodes. And the ball pops out yeah. and, and takes her out or takes out her potential He somehow suitor. knew
1: that his wife, from a Dartmoor manor house, was <laughs> yeah. happened to be in Australia at the time. Yeah, yeah. Somehow he got word. Yeah. Your wife's about to do yeah. the deed. Warrnambool. <laughs> no maybe maybe not
0: maybe not that
1: one maybe not and the other thing he promised being a tavistock boy he yeah. he promised
0: to make tavistock a magical seaport oh, but hold on, hold on a minute <laughs> now now I might not have the best geography uh, in the world but I'm pretty sure that tavistock is not on the coast this is why it was going to be a magical
1: seaport oh, i see okay but no you're right it's about 15 miles inland and quite uh, quite a long way above sea level, so it would have to be pretty
0: magical. <laughs> very magical. To turn... Although, of course... Was he What was he really talking about building some enormous leet or canal that was going to be capable of taking boats up there? He may have
1: had this wonderful vision of the future because you've hit on a very interesting point, the Tavistock Canal. Yeah. As we know, the Tavistock Canal was built in the 18th century to take... Iron, copper, tin ores yeah. from Dartmoor to the River Tamar at Morwell Ham. Okay. And uh, certainly at that point, you could argue... It was pretty Tabistak magical. had become a seaport. Yeah. And that's pretty magical because they, uh, they had to do some pretty clever engineering to do that. Yeah. But again, maybe we'll
0: come back to that in, in a future discussion. Um, so regarding, regarding Drake... Do we know anything about how did he how did he end what was what was the end for Drake? The end for Drake, let's let's not go right to the end. Okay. Here.
1: Let's let's just put pay to the Spanish Armada. Right, okay. Because despite of all his crazy things, yeah. he does seem to have had God on his side. Yeah. Because there's the well-known phrase which originally was uh, rendered in Latin. A flavit deus et dissipantur. Mm. God blew with his winds and they were scattered.
0: Mm-hmm. Who
1: were scattered? The ships of the Spanish Armada. Yeah. And we know it is a fact that the storms blew so heavily in the English Channel at that time that half the Spanish fleet ended up north of Scotland. Right. They, j- they just yeah. failed in their in their um, initial plan to invade England. Once he done all his maritime stuff, Drake actually became um, very interested in local politics. Right. He was mayor of Plymouth. Okay. And he was also quite an important um, local businessman. And it was really he who decided that uh, Plymouth needed a decent water supply.
0: Right. Here we go.
1: Here we go. (laughs) I'm climbing onto my hobby horse now. The wonderful business of the
0: Plymouth Leet. Often known as Drake's lead. There's nothing supernatural about this lead, as far as I'm aware. He built. He he built the. I mean, it was a, it was a marvel of engineering. You'll yes, it was. Yeah. But because
1: Philip II of Spain had already had his armada apparently mysteriously blown across yes. the seven seas, he actually believed the tale that was told of Sir Francis, that he rode out to. Um, a little stream on the southwestern slope of Dartmoor, the river Meavy,
0: yeah
1: uttered some magic words galloped his horse into Plymouth and as he did so the leet mysteriously wow. and miraculously
0: followed him into the town pretty cool so he he must have he must have been seen as a sort of an almost supernatural figure by those spanish uh, by those spanish captains and Yes, he was Leaders, because obviously they, they thought they were they were in a pretty <laughs> strong position with that army. Yeah, but it. they were actually dealing with a basically
1: with a magician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's it's really no wonder that uh, he became the, the toast of the town, yeah. as it were, and the Leet satisfactorily supplied Plymouth for hundreds of years and until the um, creation of Burrator Reservoir. Yes. Which has been said, it's been described as the most beautiful artificial lake in England. It is
0: absolutely beautiful.
1: And I think if you go yeah. out from Plymouth, you can stand on the top of the dam, look across the shimmering water, and you've got Sheep's Tor in the background. Yeah. Sheep's tour, again, with all its mythical associations. Yeah. Yeah. It really is quite a remarkable place. And I think it's still done. Every year, at where the point where the Leet used to be taken off the river... Plymouth Corporation host an event called the Fishing Feast. Right. What is the Fishing Feast? Well, they catch trout from the sparkling waters of the Leet. Yeah. And in those waters, they toast Sir Francis Drake. And they say, may the sons of him who brought us water never want wine. And then they crack open the bottles of claret. Nice. And they really have a great time. Um. But I'm going to just mention something else which I think most people will be aware of with Sir Francis Drake, and that's the legend of Drake's drum. Right, okay. The drum that would be beaten on his flagship when he was uh, circumnavigating the world. And legend has it that it's heard tolling in times of national importance. During World War I at Dunkirk, the beat mm. of the drum. Now, during World War II, it was moved. The drum was moved from Buckland Abbey
0: to Buckfast Abbey. Easy mistake to be made there.
1: Very easy mistake to make. But (laughs) Buckfast Abbey was the other side of the moor from Plymouth, and so it was less prone to bombing raids. Right. Um, What happened? They moved the drum. Plymouth got bombed. They moved the drum back to Buckland Abbey. The bombing stopped. And the mysterious drum was apparently heard beating on Plymouth Home. Uh,
0: there are so many of those stories where a physical object has some kind of uh power beyond itself, you know? Like where Absolutely. I remember the one uh, the one about the guernica you know, Picasso's Gurnica in Spain. yeah, it was Sort of indestructible regardless of however many times the government tried to get rid of it. And, yeah, there's definitely, I want, it may be a self-fulfilling prophecy or something, but there's definitely some objects that have more power outside of the physical world, some kind yeah. of spiritual power around
1: them. There's another little story, uh, if we've got time, to talk about yeah. it. Um, Drake had bought Buckland Abbey from his rival, Sir Richard Grenville. Old Grenners. Old Grenners. He yeah. was another of Devon's famous sea dogs. But during the refurbishment of Buckland Abbey, the devil kept taking the building materials away.
0: Is this, is this the same devil that was moving the bricks at Buckfast Abbey? He's all over <laughs> the place. He's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, guy. yeah. So what did Drake do?
1: He turned. Started Whitland. No, nope. no, okay. not this time. Not this time. <laughs> he turned himself into a
0: seagull <laughs> and As you pecked do. away at the devil's eyes. <laughs>
1: Until the devil went away
0: I like the way that the seagull is more effective At sort of annoying the devil Than
1: a a man would be Have you ever been to St Ives And had your pasty eaten by a seagull It's not a lot of fun You'll know what a formidable beast the seagull is Yeah Wow But he was a a great naval hero And a national hero in Plymouth And there's a little rhyme that just sums it up Go on Describes Drake as a man who Both a pilot And and a magistrate steered in his turn the ship of Plymouth State.
0: Nice, very good. Although, I think I prefer to see him as a, as a sort of magician with the ability to uh, transmogrify into a, a seagull. That's what I'm taking from this story. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, we could
1: maybe call him
0: a maritime magician. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, very good, yeah. very good. Excellent. Well, there we go. That's the first Delve into the weird and supernatural stories of dartmoor i think next next time up we're going to be coming into some of those some of those other topics and we'll get into i the one i'm most excited about i think probably is is the beasts we'll certainly encounter
1: some pretty formidable beasts as we go through more formidable
0: than a man that can turn into a seagull and fire a cannonball through the center of the earth well, that's a pretty formidable <laughs> yeah, achievement, if you ask it me. It is. It's a, it's a tough one are. to meet.
1: Yeah. I think we'll find some some pretty uh, interesting beasts to talk about
0: next time. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Sad, for uh, joining me on Myth and More. It's been a pleasure. And we'll be back next time with more tales of the weird and wonderful from Dartmoor.